0: Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. Chris Jones should be a familiar name not only to Ripperologists, but listeners to our podcast, as we've been privileged enough to release a few of his talks from his past appearances at the Whitechapel Society, as well as his presentation at the 2018 US Ripper Conference in Baltimore. In 2007, he organized the trial of James Maybrick at Liverpool Cricket and Sporting Club, and went on to write the highly praised book, The Maybrick A to Z. He's also contributed numerous articles on The Maybricks in various journals, and has also contributed to two books produced by the Whitechapel Society, 2011's Jack the Ripper, The Suspects, and 2014's The Little Book of Jack the Ripper. This is the second of two talks Chris gave over the weekend of the 10th and 11th of September 2022 at the launch event in Liverpool for the book The Maybrook Murder in the Diary of Jack the Ripper, which he co-authored with Daniel Dolgan in a book that is available now from Mango Books. Talk two, The Diary of Jack the Ripper.
1: Before I start, I just want to like, slightly respond to something that James showed in it, it, his excellent film. Well done, James enjoyed that. Um, how, how I got into it, and it was all an accident really. Back in 2007, I was involved in uh, the great Blue and Blue Liverpool Collegiate Rugby Club, and we were based at Liverpool Cricket Club, and it was the 200th anniversary of the founding of the club. It was also. The 700th anniversary of the founding of Liverpool as a township, and it was also the, the advent of the European, Liverpool being a European capital of culture. So we said, We'll organise a little event. Knew from the archives that James Maybrick was a member, so far, we'll have a little Friday night, little quiz, bit of a laugh, a few beers, and that's it. And we got a hold of the show, in fact, I think it was Michael, I think you got a hold of the show at number, didn't you? If I remember. I think he did, yeah. And so we, we got hold of Shirley Harrison, then we got hold of Keith Skinner, then we got hold of Paul Begg, and then all of a sudden, I just suddenly got swept along and it turned into a weekend event, the wonderful Jeremy Beagle turned up, what a lovely guy he was, fantastic supporter of the event, and I suddenly got catapulted into this world of ripperology and ecology. and I didn't have an agenda, didn't have any strong views either way. I was sceptical about the suddenly appeared in 1992 as a historian, which I it was, who's got to have a clear provenance. Michael Barrett rang me up several times. Uh, occasionally he was very kind and warm, and sometimes he was just ranting. Somehow I was making a lot of money, which I clearly wasn't. Uh, and then I, I, I met all these people. I spent uh, an afternoon in Mike Barrett's company, in his house in Burkdale, is where he lived then. A little bit worrying when he shut all the curtains, (laughs) didn't lock the door, whatever. But he he was very engaging, he was very honest. I thought he was very honest. And people will tell you that Mike Barrett was stupid, and he comes across very bad in some of these films you see him in. He was a very clever guy, not in sometimes in a written sense, but he had a vivid imagination. Vivid imagination. Loads of ideas he was throwing out at me. And David told us a story on the phone about, he did this superb car trick with you once in a he, yeah. Yeah, he, was, he was driving along, he suddenly peed some cars out of his top pocket as he was driving along. He was not. You see these films, and you get a false impression of the man. Yes, he was He drunk too much at the end. Yes, he was. He had a horrible to to his wife. But, don't be misled into thinking he was a buffoon, because he wasn't. And his wife... Well, his ex-wife, I should say, now called Anne Graham. I spent another wonderful afternoon with her recently in Ball Street. Three, four hours we were there together. Very, very intelligent woman. She's written a wonderful book on, on the Maybrick case. She wrote that book over 20 years ago, or whatever, I can't remember the exact date, but a long time ago anyway. But she was able, just from her memory, to go through some of the intricacies of the Maybrick case. These it, I'm not saying they forged the diary but I disagree fundamentally with some of the things that were said on that show about those two people they they, they get badly portrayed um, partly their own fault and obviously Mike Barrett did have a severe drinking problem Um, more than severe he was a a proper full blown alcoholic. so I got plunged into all this while I was open minded and I was open minded until about a year ago I still believe, I doubt about the diary, how could something appear in 1992, and then I'll watch a couple of months later, that's suspicious isn't it. Um, and then we, I found a bit more about it. So with, for Dan in America, and also with Roger there, Roger Wilkes, who, who's a, a very knowledgeable guy in this case, has got loads of books and resources about it. We looked at different hypotheses. We didn't just look at it's a modern forgery, we looked, could it possibly be old? Could it be genuine? We also (coughs) looked, could it be somehow produced somewhere in between the 1920s? So we didn't go into this with a fixed mind, we went in with an open mind. I'd be lying to say that if I wasn't sort of inching towards the side of forgery, but we we were open minded. we decided, this is the diary here. This is a picture I took of it, it's 11 inches by 8 inches. It's called a diary. It's not a diary. It's a confessional document. There's only one date in it. Which, by the way, is clever. Why would you not put dates in? Come back to that a little bit later on. The only date in it is this at the very end. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. I give my name to all knows, all history knowers, a gentleman born. And if you read the diary, the whole rationale behind his killing spree is that he finds out that his wife is having an affair although the dates don't match by the way but we'll put that to one side for a second so instead of killing his wife <laughs> or her lover really he goes down to London and savagely mutilates prostitutes the, the, the killing of Mary Kelly the last victim is the most savage brutal killing of all ripped it to pieces put parts of her body all around the room this is a real crazed man could it possibly be James Mabry unfortunately I haven't got enough time to deal with the watch but I do agree with what the other people said the watch in many ways is more of a an issue difficult to explain than the than the diary um, it's, it's something that we are going to pursue this is not close to us we're going to come back and revisit it I'm not going to say too much about today, but once again, I met Albert Johnson, there's Albert Johnson with the actual watch. And I do agree, I think it was Martin Fido who said, he was a nice, genuine man. But that doesn't mean to say he wasn't involved in the forgery, of course. But he was a nice man, and I got to know him and some of his family, and he went to his funeral, because Albert Johnson's dead now, as his mic Barrett. So we decided, I'm going to set a little bit of background so you can see where I'm coming from with all this. So we decided that we had to make a, you know, there's lots of books about it. And in the world of ripperology, there's this massive debate, you either 100% think it's genuine or 100% think it's not genuine. It's, some people like Paul Bay fluctuate a little bit, but in most sides it's clear cut. So we thought there has to be some sort of rationale, some test. You have to take a holistic view, and look at all the different elements and strands to try and make a considered judgement. So we said for the diary to be considered genuine, it must pass 10 tests. It must, must underline, must have an acceptable provenance. We must know where it came from. The year 1992, March 1992, is not an acceptable provenance. It has to track back to 1888. The diary must be a genuinely Victorian document it must be in something that's clearly Victorian in origin the must see all the must these are all must must be Victorian in origin too far sorry the handwriting must match James's handwriting i'll deal with the handwriting issue a little bit later on but it has to be in his hand if he wrote it, in the diary, the diarist alludes to have written that he wrote, or she wrote. Well, I'll stick with he because it's a bit easier. To say that he wrote the Dear Boss letter. The Dear Boss letter is the most infamous, the most famous of all the letters received at that time, sent to the central news agency. It's where the phrase Jack the Ripper first appears. I think that's right, isn't it, Adam? Yeah, it first appears. So it, the police kept quiet for a little bit and then decided, no, 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 it might be genuine. So they released it to the press and they unleashed a tsunami of letters in response. Totally counterproductive. In the, the diarist, the says, I will send Central another one. He is saying he wrote that letter. Paul Fellman, who believed in the diary, said, if the diarist didn't write the dear boss letter, he was not Jack the Ripper. There must be no mistakes, no errors. Things that you can show are clearly wrong. If he's James Maybrick, he must know about the Maybrick life. He must know about the family, the kids, the way they lived, his work. He must have that information. Information that's not available in any of the books. New information, extra information. If he was Jack the Ripper, he must have a knowledge of the Ripper killings. A detailed knowledge of the Rupert Kills. Um, Bruce Robinson said, he he, he did all this, he was was amazed at the wonder of the writing about the killings. Mm. I'm amazed that Bruce Robinson said that. The killing of, the first killing in London, Polly Nichols, is covered in three lines. Three sentences. That's not hugely revealing, that's not hugely exciting. He must match the eyewitness descriptions. And there are some. Philip Sutton, who wrote, wrote one of the classic books, identified six people who had a very clear view of the person they believed was Jack the Ripper. Does James, James... If James is the killer, he must match them. And does he have the mindset? This man who ripped these women to pieces, these are all ten things that he must do. <coughs> if he fails one of them, Doubtful. Fails two or three, very doubtful. Fails all ten, forget. It. Let's go through them then. Provenance. I haven't really got time to do all this, but you've seen some of it in the film. Suddenly appears Mike Barrett rings London, tells Shirley Harrison and her agent she's got the diary. When he's asked, he said, Oh, it was given to me by Tony Devereux. Tony Devereux's dead. 1994, Barrett says he, can, he makes a story to the reporter how he forged the diary. Then his wife comes up with a completely different story. Oh, it wasn't from Mike Barrett. I gave it to Tony Deborah to give to Mike so we could have something to do. And then she comes up with well, yet another version of the story later on that it was given to her by her grandfather who was the illegitimate son of Florence who was left with a blacksmith in Hartlepool. Th- these are all, this is not provenance, this is gibberish. This <laughs> has not been there which even hints failing of being proven acceptable. <coughs> when I met him he rambled for ages, and as I say, in between these things, he suddenly had these sparks of wonderful ideas. Could he could have he written a diary? He couldn't have penned it? Could he have come up with the ideas? could have. I'm not saying he did, but he was capable of it. Paul Begg, you saw that interview, said famously, when faced with the possibility of this forged document, the most important thing is provenance. Provenance. In fact, poor provenance is long sufficient to brand the diary of forgery. To try and get round this, they come up. with One of the, 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 the stories you hear about the books. The hypothesis is: uh, it was found under the floorboards in Battle um, Some of us we, we went through some of this yesterday. The idea that the diary was placed under the floor of by James Maybrick and discovered on the 9th of March by electricians who were facing <coughs> new heaters. What is significant about this, and what does give it some <coughs> legs, is that on the 9th of March, electricians were doing work in Battlecrees. That is a fact. And on the 9th of March, Barrett does ring London. So the hypothesis goes take up the floorboards, they find out the diary that maybe had left 100 years ago, take it to a pub in Kirkdale where, where one of the electricians did drink occasionally, any lines, and there's Mike Barrett. Do you want to buy this? 20 quid, 25 quid? Okay, I'll do it. Guess what? Jack the Ripper rings London. Now, the date is, I, I won't deny the date has been significant, but. It's, 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 it's full of flaws. First of all, the date of the diary is the 3rd of May. On that day, James Maybrick was seriously ill. He got to work in the morning, late. He came back, he, he, had, he had a Turkish bath, he came back, he was sick and vomiting. His legs and his arms were twitching, strictly he knew, probably. Could barely stand up. He went to bed. People kept coming in and out of the room to check on him. His kids went up to see him. They, then they had to call the doctor out to him, because he was so bad and could barely moved. But we're expected to believe that on this day, when the guy could barely move, somehow he zipped out of bed, picked up heavy wooden floorboards fitted with brass nails, brass, big thick brass nails, which once you get up, it takes a lot of force, crack. Put the diary down, Put them all back together again. Put in brand new nails without anybody hearing any noise or attracting any attention. I'm sorry, I find that very hard to buy. The electricians are consistently denied. Even Paul Falman said the electricians would say anything if you gave them enough money. <laughs> he was desperate to pursue this lead. He jumped on it. He gave up on it because he, he couldn't buy into it. Too. Paul Dodd, the man who owns the house, had taken up the floorboards already. Now, this is the room that the Maybricks were in, James Maybrick's bedroom. There's James Maybrick's <coughs> the bed. None of the floorboards on the 9th of March were taken up in his room anyway. What happened was, there's the fuse box there. Three new, well, two new storage heaters were fitted, and one was moved from the position there, moved from that wall to that wall. They had to trace. The, the electrical cables under the floorboards. The main floorboards they took up were in the hallway. The, the linen closet was long gone by now. That wall was gone now. You we'll see if it gone. Then they went through what was the dressing room, and they just went into a corner of the room. <clears throat> so, it's a hypothesis, but it's certainly not one that I buy into. The floorboards in that room had been picked up on three occasions prior to that. In the 1920s, the house was changed from gas to electric. The floorboards in that room came up. No diary was found. In 1977, Paul Doll himself did some electric. Sorry, in 1946, his father bought the house in 1946. It had been bomb damaged. Needed a huge amount of work. Floorboards came up. No diary was found. 1977, the floorboards came up again. No diary was found. So, discovered in March 1992? I don't think so. Okay, the paper is the paper Victorian. Well, the answer to that is probably yes. It is. It's a it's a scrapbook. Though, are they difficult to come by? <coughs> Hello, what have I just bought? It's a Victorian scrapbook. Bought it on eBay a couple of weeks ago. I haven't talked about it. Very popular with Victorians. This one was actually printed in Liverpool. Anybody, you and I, would go down to a big large sale antique shop and get one of these they're super easy can't get a diary why can't I, you know because nobody's going to print a diary for the, the. you can get a scrapbook and why would you write in a scrapbook they're not particularly good for writing in heavy you know it, 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 but because that's what they're available they're easy to access they're easy to buy scrapbooks and i go hang in a minute i've got another one they just keep pouring out of me now, this is another one, scrapbooks. Because the Victorians, that's what they like to do. They put pictures in them. They put things in them. There's one there. Oh look, there's a few of them. They're all in there. So, yeah. So what did he do? The scrapbook, the, 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 the diary scrapbook, has got the first 40-odd 40 pages, 43 pages I think at the top of my head, ripped out. Why were they ripped out? because they have things in them can't have things printed in them then there's 60 odd pages of writing and then there's 17 pages blank at the end somebody of James Maybrick's background would not have put his personal thoughts down in such a document, I don't believe really easy to buy, I've got a couple of them Robert Smith, the owns the diary has got one, another one would they have done it in such a damaged scrapbook a ripped scrapbook I don't think so. Experts have done tests on the books. One of them, Alex Chisholm, said he was struck by the fact that although there was 43 pages ripped out, the story was totally intact. He said, that's not credible. But the pages have been ripped out. Because it, it, where it does start, it starts mid-sentence. Clever. If anybody told you the diary is a crude forgery, they're wrong. It's a clever. Dr Baxendale found stains in the diary that indicated it had been used to hold photographs judged to be 3.5 inches by 2 inches. This was the size of print popular between the two world wars. In other words, it held pictures from the 1930s. Is it genuine? Well, it does. It, partly passed the test in the sense that it's Victorian (coughs) but it's the wrong sort of document it's a scrapbook one used in the 1930s one that's ripped now the ink (laughs) okay on the first glance the ink's a bit of a problem because the ink has been been tested several times and they were looking for chemicals in the ink that didn't exist or weren't used by people in Victorian period and the results have been contradictory. Some people have found things, or they were definitely not Victorian. Some people say, oh, have you got that wrong? Yes, they are. There's one thing that you cannot forge, and that's the solubility test. What happens is, when you put ink on paper, it starts to integrate into the paper. The longer that the ink is on the paper, the more it integrates. If you drop a solvent on the ink, and the ink has only been on a short time, it instantly dissolves. If the ink has been on the paper a long time, it takes a long time for it to dissolve. Dr Baxendale did a test, and instantly, he put the solvent on the ink, it started to dissolve. Instantly. I don't understand why some of these books go on about composition. This, 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 this to me, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a silver bullet. It's a pretty powerful one. There's been one other solubility test done by Dr. Rendell's team. Now, Dr. Rendell was a guy who was employed by the Sunday Times and he, who looked at Hitler diaries. And he said that Hitler diaries were a forgery. And he said, he, when he looked at the, this diary, he said it was the same, same sort of style, looked like it had all been written in one go. Not like a diary would have been done over different days and different months. He also did a solubility test. But he said the solubility test wouldn't be so good on this, but because of the nature of a scrapbook, the paper is more absorbent. Therefore, the ink should last a bit longer than you would think. And his test produced a date of the 1920s, which he said was fitting with the fact that it was absorbent paper. So the solubility test really is a hammer nail through the idea that the diary is anything but new. <coughs> we'll never get to the bottom of the ink properly in the sense that, what is a typical Victorian ink? You can do your own ink today. If you wanted to, you set your mind to it, you could produce your own ink compatible with Victorian inks. The handwriting. This is the handwriting of... The diarist. This is the handwriting from James's will. For a long time the only bits of handwriting they had from James was his wedding certificate and his will. The people who were pro-diary said, oh the will's a forgery, the will's a forgery. But since then, and by the way it isn't, but since then mm-hmm. We've come across with a huge amount more. We've got actual correspondence. This is some that I've got. I've got quite a few that come from um, (coughs) archives in America, which matches up with that, but doesn't match with that. Every single, every single handwriting expert, bar none, said 100% conclusively James Maybrick did not write that. Those handwritings are incompatible. Now, some people try to say, well, well, well hang on a minute, he could have disguised his handwriting. Oh, well, he could have done. And some people have done that, but you only disguise your handwriting if you want to disguise your name. He doesn't. He gives loads of clues who he is. Talks about his wife and his kids and his house and his job. He's not disguising anything. Some people say, oh, he could be drug-infused. Well that, once again, all the experts have looked at that, and once again they discount that. There is not a single handwriting expert anywhere, at any time, has said James Maybrick is the author of the diary. In fact, they all said 100% without fail, he didn't do it. The Dear Boss letter, there's the famous Dear Boss letter, called Dear Boss because he's headed Dear Boss, and it finishes Jack the Ripper. This is important because the diarist claims to have written it, it's also because some of the words in the letter, like ha-ha, funny little games, also feature in the diary. So the idea is therefore the diarist wrote this letter. Well, once again, we haven't got a huge amount of time to go through all this, but all the handwriting experts, every single one again, i said, James Maybrick's handwriting does not match that. In fact, most people would say the Dear Boss letter is a forgery It was written by a journalist and sent to the Central News Agency Coined the phrase Jack the Ripper And they sold an awful lot of copy From a purely financial point of view, this was a fantastic boost for newspaper sales All the experts agree, all the experts agree There isn't one that dissents. Handwriting doesn't match James Mayberry the police believe the letter, the dear boss letter was a forgery. The diarist did not write the dear boss letter, hence using Paul Feldman's own criteria, he cannot be jacked at it. Are there any inaccuracies? There are loads. I don't know why they said in the film there were there's loads of them. Uh, even though the diarist, this is, the, this is what I'm saying, it's a clever piece of work. The diarist went out of his way to be as vague as possible. I killed somebody in Manchester doesn't say where doesn't say when doesn't say how doesn't say why it's just it's just a throwaway line. why is it like that somebody's bound to die in Manchester sometime you can't track it down you can't catch them out there are statements for the Manchester one there there's a Mrs Hammersmith nobody's ever found anybody who's credible to me Mrs Hammersmith we'll talk about some of the other things as well one of the the most important things is the diarist said he started to write the book in the post house, there is a post house. It's in Cumberland Street. It's the only post house that they found with that name. But oh, hang on a minute! In 1888, it was called the Muckmidden, and a completely different name. It wasn't called the post house at all. Does the diary show an intimate knowledge of in Maybury family life? The diarist refers to James's wife who turns to his children. There's only one thing in the diary, I think, there's only one thing, this is one of the reasons why I had an open mind for a while, where there is a positive thing to say for the diary. He, the diarist calls himself Sir Jim. Now, they found some correspondence by a woman called Florence Hornspow, who said that James liked to be called Sir James now Sir James uh, Sir Jim if he liked to be called Sir James then he would have written Sir James but trying to present the holistic view that is one of the things that those people who think the diary is incredible do point to he he uses the phrase if I say 37 times it might be a little bit out one way or another but he uses it very often However, apart from the Sir James reference, every single thing that's in the diary about the Maybrick family can be easily sourced, easily sourced, not difficult. In 1888, James Maybrick and Florence had two sons, sorry, one son and one daughter. The son was called James Chandler, he had the nickname Bobo. But when he was a bit older, he had a second nickname, Sonny. In 1888, the year of the rip of murders, Florence Ornpath stays in Patelcrese. She writes about her experiences. She writes about young James. On every single occasion she uses the name Sonny. Not once does she use the name Bobo. But the diarist writes Bobo. Because that's in the book, that wasn't available at the time. The diarist refers to one of James's brothers as Thomas. Nobody called him Thomas. Everybody called him Tom. Even Tom called himself Tom. When Michael died and he, he sent a reef to the funeral, he signed it Tom and Julie. Edwin Maybrick's daughter, Amy Mayne, I've got, from Roger, from Derek Warman, we've got some correspondence. She met him, called him Tom. Nobody called it. I I could give you lots more examples. This guy did not have an intimate knowledge of the Matrix. This is something that's absolutely, pivotally crucial in my mind. In spring 1889, Florence suffered a miscarriage. James told Dr. Humphreys that he doubts about the father of the child. Now, as I said before, the rationale behind the diary is that the diarist... We found out his wife was having an affair. He went crazy. He went on a killing spree. The last victim that he admits to, in the diary, if it's genuine, is the Mary Kelly killing in November, 88. And then he said, oh, hang on a minute. Oh, I found love again. I'm stopped killing. Serial killers don't do that. They carry on till they're caught or till they die. The following year when he stopped and love is in the air again, he suddenly finds out that his wife's pregnant and had a miscarriage. That is not mentioned in the diary. Why is it not mentioned in the diary? Because it's not mentioned in the books. It was kept hidden in, in, in one of the archives, which Kate Calhoun found when she was doing research for her excellent book. This, this, if he had been Jack the Ripper, genuinely, his wife's just had a miscarriage, straight down to London, get the knife out again, off he goes. Doesn't happen doesn't happen. It's not mentioned. Why is it not mentioned? It wouldn't be mentioned if the diarist knew about it. as he's outpouring of grief his anger. It'd be in the diary. It's not mentioned. The person who wrote the diary didn't know about it. No great information. So where does he get the stuff? Well, he gets the stuff. Copied. Excerpts from the diary. Dr. Fuller believes that there is very little the matter with me. That's a quote directly from the diary. Dr. Fuller believes there is very little the matter with me. When we go through the books, because we also looked at the view it could be an old forgery, found there was very little the matter with him. From a modern book, the Ryan book, which I think is very important in the construction, he could find very little the matter. That's, as an ex teacher, looking for things copied, <laughs> plagiarism. And he might say, well, hang on a minute, that's just a one-off. We've got 59 59 examples. The diary. I am in the habit of taking strong medicine. The Ryan book. For some time he'd been in the habit of taking a strong medicine. It, it, it just goes on and on. I've got numbness, numbness. There's a, a little the matter with me. Every piece of information about the Maybrick, family life, or the Ripper murders, you can find an example of in books. And in some of them, the words have hardly changed. My medicine will give me strength, from the Ryan book. I take, uh, you take to ask it once in a while because I find it strengthens me. Other Maybrick issues, there's a the problem with chronology. Lawrence's affair with, with Braley, which is supposed to be the reason he started the committed murders, started sometime at the end of November 88. The Ripper murders are stopped by then. It's out of sequence. Motive. James Maybrick's supposed motive that his wife was having an affair. If he'd been a he'd have been after it. first of all his wife and then Braley. And in fact, Braley believed that was going to happen because he was going to flee off to, uh, because he did have an affair, if you remember, I said this morning, he was going to zip off to Europe quickly. According to the the diarist, Maybrick knew that his wife was having an affair, but he laughed about it. He said nasty things, but he, he, he let it happen. He let it carry on. That just flies in the face of what the man was like. On the Grand National in March 1989, he saw his wife holding Braley's hand, and he gave her a beating. That was just holding her hand in public, and he beat her, gave her a big black eye. Is this the same man who would let sit back and see his wife having an affair over a period of time? <laughs> Babick lived six months after the brutal K- Kelly murder, which is seen as the last of the cannibal killings, and is also the one that the diaries. The diarist makes another mistake. He talks about the Cotton Exchange. Everybody who worked in the Cotton Exchange didn't call it the Cotton Exchange, they called it the change. Everybody. The diarist suggests Michael Maybrick wrote the verses for his songs. He writes, you know, I can be just as clever in verses as Michael. Michael didn't like verses! There's only one song out of the whole catalogue he ever wrote the lines for. Michael wrote the music. His co-writer, <coughs> Fred Weatherly, wrote the words. From. Then, irony of ironies, in December 1888, James Maybrick is called the grand jury in Liverpool. Now this is a man, called to the diary, he's the most wanted man in Britain, he's pouring scorn continually at the police and the authorities, and now he's on the jury. He would make millions out of it, he would go on and on about it. He doesn't mention it once he didn't know the diaries does he show a detailed knowledge <coughs> of the religious claims seven killed seven women two in Manchester he does provide some details but they're sparse the killing oh, I said before Polly Nichols three lines now this is his first killing in London this is a seminal event he would have gone to town about it just three lines Second killing, Annie Chapman, hardly any more. There's a few verses which have repeated words. It's not great insight, nothing. We can't track down the ones in Manchester. Few details. Every detail you can find in a book. This is another important one. On the night of the double murder, the, the Ripper—if it's the same person—and not everybody thinks it's the same person, by the way—but the diaries claimed he killed both women. Kills Elizabeth Stripe. The view is he was interrupted. So because he's still angry, he then goes and kills another woman, Cavanettos. But the murder weapon is different in both murders. That's what the, the, most of the, the, the experts would say. This is, this is a little bit, some of my, some of my own terminology, but, but he doesn't explain that. If this is a guy who's the Ripper, why is he using two different knives? Why doesn't he mention it? Because he doesn't know. He can't explain it. The Tim match Matchbox Empty quote, we'll come back to that in a second. The diarist makes mistakes, referring to the death of Mary Kelly. He's got basic facts wrong, but where different body parts were found. This is the tin Matchbox Empty. This is how it appears in the diary. Tin Matchbox Empty, Cigarette Case, blah blah blah. In 1987, Martin Fido produced his book, which he mentioned before, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about version one or version two; it makes no difference. He produced a list of Captain Edo's um, possessions that had never, be- from the police, that had never before been published. Tin matchbox empty, one tin matchbox empty. That's just, and the rest of it, cigarette case. It's just copied. One of the, we'll talk a little bit about this, guy. one of the, the top FBI profile men, John Douglas, wrote, If the diary is authentic, I would expect it to shed new light on the crimes, their methodology. Which is missing here? I'd expect to see the whole pathological construct laid out, rather than a simple breast-beating excuse for why he did it. All of that is missing. It must be judged to faith. Does he match the eyewitness descriptions? This is a very famous composite picture that was in the Daily Telegraph and it was actually featured in the Liverpool Echo. <laughs> Philip Sutton, who was, as I say, one of the most esteemed writers on, on the whole case, said that <coughs> the ripper from, from the six best, and he actually used it as well, is a white male of average or below average height in his 20s or 30s. James was 50, suffering from chronic ill health. <laughs> This picture comes largely from the information provided by Matthew Packer and Inspector Swanson, mm-hmm. who Adam knows a lot about, said it was almost valueless. The witness descriptions do not match James Maybrick at all, full stop. What about the mind of a serial killer? Well, once again, this is things that some people who think that they're trying to put the other side as well. Did he? Look, traveled to London, yes he did. Did he live in the Whitechapel area? Yes he had. Uh, the murders took place at the weekend, so probably he worked during the week. He had used prostitutes, and there's no doubt about it, at the time of the River Killings, his health wasn't perfect. As I said this morning, he'd gone to his doctors 20 times. The trouble with Dr. Vauchon said, on the balance, on the writing, We could judge it to be authentic, but he works on the basis that the diary was written by the killer. Which is a real weakness in his whole ideas. This is what Douglas said. If we look at his killings, using all his experience and his expertise from the FBI and all the rest, he came up with offender traits. He would be a white, aged 20s to 30s. James, no. From a family with a dominated mother who probably drunk heavily. Sweet <coughs> passive father. Definitely not the case. A lot of these, when we look at people, this sort of ill, they often track back to the you know the a damaged childhood, uh, which sadly has shaped much of their adult life. failed to receive constant care as a child, becomes asocial, sets fires, mistreats small animals. No. Loved animals. Loved them. He worked alone. A time off at the weekends. He didn't work alone. One of the things about being a successful cotton merchant is you couldn't work alone. You had to buy and sell continually. You had to network continually. Your business would only survive on the basis of you being recognized as trustworthy and reliable and honest. Not adept at meeting people. Most of his relationship would have been prostitutes. Well James did meet prostitutes, especially in his earlier life. But he was happily married. For much of it. No, all the time. Doesn't match. Probably not married. He was married. Quite shy alone No, 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 no. James Baby did not match the mindset of the psychopathic serial killer. So let's go back to the 10 part key test. Remember, I'm saying, and this is we, we we, we tried, we did come. Here, didn't we? Come from and I'm completely open minded on this. Has the die got an acceptable provenance? Has the diary got. A, a, is it genuine Victoria? Well, there's an acceptable provenance. The answer is no. Absolutely. 100%, 300% no. Is it a Victorian document? Well, it's a Victorian document, but it's a scrapbook. It's had photographs from the 1930s in it. Is the Victorian. Is it it? No, the solubility tests showed it was only on recently. Does the handwriting match? No, it doesn't. Did James write the Dear Post letter? No, he didn't. Are there any inaccuracies? There are inaccuracies. There's mistakes. It's littered with them. Does he have an intimate knowledge of the Maybrick family? No, he doesn't. Does he have an intimate knowledge of the Ripper killings? No. <laughs> Does he match the eyewitness his descriptions? No. Does he match the profile of a serial killer? No. So what I'm saying to you is that when I'm looking at this objectively, holistically, and we came from it, I said, I'm honestly we think I've gone through this. No, 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 no. Is James Maverick Jack the Ripper? No. What? <laughs> <laughs>
0: was Chris Jones with the second of two talks he gave over the weekend of the 10th and the 11th of September 2022 at the book launch event for The Maybrook Murder and the Diary of Jack the Ripper. I'd like to thank Chris Jones and James Johnston for making the release of that presentation possible. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, the world's largest online repository of information about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. Our podcast section contains hundreds of conference presentations, author interviews, roundtable discussions, limited-run serials, and book reviews, and I encourage you to subscribe to our show and check them out. If you have any questions or comments about this or any of our podcast releases, Feel free to find us on the Casebook message boards or on Twitter and Facebook. Just search for RipperCast. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.